Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC A25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM 97.5 HD2, part of the Measley, Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I'll get the intro right one of these days. We've been on the air a little bit now. <laughs> I'm just so excited about the Eagles in the NFC Championship game this week that I can't even do a show intro cleanly, can I? Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm the opposite, obviously. The, the congratulations Thank on you. your Eagles winning the game. Okay. Uh, as, as you know, I had a bet with my Eagles-loving son, and I every day this week I have to text him. Just for a week? He, just for a week. Oh, Eagles I thought it was longer. No, no, Eagles roll, so I'm very much looking forward to the end of this weekend. <laughs> 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 cannot wait, but I am very, very excited that, that once we get past you gloating about the Eagles and being happy about the Eagles, that we're going to have three amazing guests today. Yeah, I'll only say I'm very excited for the game this weekend. Uh obviously nervous because i'm an eagles fan dave spadaro was right i had nothing to worry about last week i should give him that shout out there right jeff you know yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. we'll get back to the eagles talk in a little bit more after a couple of great interviews why don't we get started talking with the Rutgers head coach Jeff, coming off a big win this week against Penn State to go 14-6, and six, taking second place in the Big Ten right now. Welcome to the show, Rutgers head coach Steve Peichel. Coach, these are exciting times on the banks. How are you today? Today we, we have a day off. I mean, not, not for me, but our players. Well-earned day off um, yesterday uh, playing a good Penn State team, too. So happy, like, like my team a lot. Love the energy, you know, in Jersey Mike's arena right now and uh, – you know, if the league is a monster, we're going to we got to get ready to go on the road to play, you know, a Philly guy uh, at Iowa, Ram McCaffrey, who's a, a great, great coach with a really good basketball team. So challenges keep coming, but uh, excited where we are. All right. Well, you just mentioned Jersey Mike's Arena uh, as somebody who grew up uh, right outside the shadow of Rutgers. The rack is someplace that is legendary to me. It's one of the arenas in the country. It's loud. It's raucous and it's got great basketball now. What's it like for you to play in the rack? Well, I will tell you, you know, it's changed a lot in my seven years. Um, I mean, when, when I took the job, Jim Calhoun, the UConn coach, who was my coach at Connecticut, said he thought the rack was one of the toughest venues to play in in his whole career. Um, and I was hopeful that we could get it back to that level. And uh, we really have the students come out. Um, it's, it's yesterday. There was a two hour, they were there two hours early. The line was all the way around, um, one of our diners here on campus, uh, around the corner. So it's become, you know, an exciting place. The students have come out and made it loud. I think some of the coaches in the league have already declared it one of the toughest places in the league, which, which has a lot of tough places to go play too. So, um, you know, just proud of that. And then, you know, Jersey Mike's has jumped on and, and you got some of the best sandwiches going too. So (laughs) guys come up, we're going to treat you, treat you well. You know, you mentioned coach Calhoun, you were a part of his first recruiting class. and, And he said of you, he was a leader. Clearly he was a leader. You had the chance to go play overseas after your own illustrious playing career going to the tournament, you decided to take your opportunity to be an assistant with Coach Calhoun. Can you talk about his impact on you and your coaching style? Well, I will tell you, I'm blessed in so many ways because I was there year one. You know, I was part of his first recruiting class. We were last in the Big East at the time, and I was able to grow 
uh, and see how he transformed a program. And my last year as a senior, you know, we were number one in the Big East, won the Big East championship for the first time, was number one seed in the NCAA tournament. So I actually got to live it as a player. And then I was blessed when he asked me to be on his staff and, and, and to stay on and to really learn behind the scenes. You know, as a player, you only get a little bit of what, what you get. But now to be in the meetings with Coach Calhoun and to understand why he was doing the things he was doing and how he was coaching us and different methods that he uses. Um, and to still to have him to this day, we talk all the time. Uh, he's an unbelievable guy to call when you're looking for advice. I mean, he, you know, three national championships, hall of fame coach. I mean, a, a hundred, you know, um, what seemed like a hundred big East championships and tournament championships and all the different things that he's been able to do. And, you know, I'm just blessed to have a mentor like him and, and he'll call me and he'll give me like the truth. You, you didn't play well today. Your team got to play better. You got to run more. You got to do this. And I just love it because I know it's just coming from a place. There's no agendas with him. He just wants me to win. And he loves Rutgers. I know he's a UConn Husky forever, but I would say his second favorite team is is, is the Scarlet Knights. So I'm, I'm honored and, and, and that I have the ability to have a guy like that on my side. You got to witness firsthand as a player at UConn growing a program, winning the 1988 NIT, winning your first Big, Big East title. Um and going on to the tournament, what is it like now? What are the challenges that you have now as a coach that didn't exist then as far as what's going on with the transfer portal and how you build a team? Well, I mean, you know, the last few years have been unbelievably, you know, challenging when you start with COVID and then you add the portal and then, you know, now you're dealing with name, image and likeness, you know, and just overall, um, kids' mental health now with the social media and how that affects their lives too. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, I always say there's a lot of alligators in the pond, you know, and you try to help your guys, you know, navigate um, all those obstacles. Uh, but, you know, for me, I'm just an old school guy. I still believe in kids come to college, you know, um, to get a degree and kids come to, you know, these great universities to have a great experience and, and to learn and, to get better in basketball. And, and uh, you know, I try to remind, even though you got the portal and you got all those different things, hopefully you treat, you know, the kids the right way, they get better. You know, we've graduated every kid since we've been here. I'm real proud of that. Um, I'm real proud that they are a part of our community here. They go to football games, they go to soccer games, they go to concerts. You know, I want them to enjoy college. And, and I know always, you know, kids are in a hurry to get to that pro level. And and sometimes I say, don't bypass some of the greatest years of your life, you know, with college and, and the different things that you learn from college. So there's many obstacles out there now. It's changed in my 32 years, but uh, still believe in the true values of why you go to college and, and, and try to get kids better and, you know, have fun. Well, they clearly come there for you too, along with the campus. And, you know, you, you famously told A.D. Hobbs, you'd walk the turnpike to get the job if that's what it took. And then you told the marketing department, you'd do anything for them, including help students move into the dorms. Talk about building the community around the team and how you got that going. Well, I, I tell you, there's still a few kids, too, that I moved in the dorms that I know didn't come to games that year. So I got to track <laughs> those people down because that was the deal. If we moved you in, you got to come to a game. And, and uh, I met a few of them that a year later, and I said, I'm not so sure that they had gone to games, you know, back in those days. But, uh, you, you know, I really believe it, it takes a whole community 
opportunity to have a good basketball program. It's never just the basketball coach. It's, you know, getting the students out. We have a riot squad, which is an unbelievable student group that comes to games. But, you know, you need your professors to come. You need the alums to come back. Um, you need the people that live here in, in Piscataway and Brunswick, you know, to come to games. So the more we can get out with our players and, and the more I can get out in the community and just let them know that, you know, we need their support. And, you know, that's a big part of this. And, um, you know, our band here is great and our cheerleaders, our dance team. I mean, they're so important to the environment in, in, in the gym, um, you know, and so everybody's important. Your academic advisor, your strength and conditioning coaches, the people that keep you healthy, um, you know, the people that come to games. So it's never coaches get way too much, you know, credit for the stuff that everyone else is doing. And, um, you know, we got a lot of great people here at Rutgers. One of the reasons I took the job were the people. And now seven years later, it's 100 percent the people that make this a special place. The region that you're in is also a great place, in addition to New Jersey itself, and which has tons of athletes that you want to keep in in-house, in-state. And it's always been a struggle for Rutgers. You have Philadelphia and New York, you know, to your north and your south. What has it been like trying to recruit and to keep the the in-state stars and have them go to Rutgers and understand what a great school Rutgers is. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got to get kids that want to be here. And, and it doesn't always matter where the location is, but you got to find kids from all over the place. We especially want to do a great job in, in, in New Jersey. And, and we have. I mean, Paul Mulcahy, he's a great player for us. Ron Harper now is playing in the NBA for the Toronto Raptors. Cliff is one of the best players ever to come out of the state of New Jersey. And now we have Derek Simpson. So um, they help bring other players too with them, but we still want to just get the right players. And I want to find unselfish kids that want to take on the task of raising Rutgers basketball. And, uh, you know, it, it's become a little bit, you know, people are listening a little bit more because we're graduating guys and guys are getting better. I mean, we're a huge program on developing guys and, we don't always get the 10 star kid or the 19 star kid. We find kids that, that fit our program that are tough and that want to get better and want to get a degree from a you know great university and, and play in a great conference. So um, we really try to track the right people again, you know, and who we recruit. And, um, you know, it's always nice when you can get a local kid to stay home and have his family enjoy his career too. I think that's a big part of it. And uh, we've been able to talk some really good ones into doing that. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, during this interview, and, and I've heard you before talk about how important education is and how important getting a degree is. How hard is it to to focus on that as a coach in addition to winning and in addition to the fact that kids are looking to, to go pro earlier? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've been a big believer of this in, in 32 years of coaching, and, and it won't change with the portal or with today's, you know, athletes. You, you know, the degree is the reason I'm here. I'm able to coach at Rutgers. And, you know, I thought I was going to play in the NBA for, you know, 10 years, too. Um, I find out very quickly um, that that's not always the case, but your degree now will, will be able to take care of you and your family for a lot a lot longer. So I preach that. And even the kids that want to go early and leave, I want them to come back, you know, and finish up. We're, we're blessed. Quincy Doobie, one of our last first round draft picks, who was a great player here, just graduated the other day. So he came back and, and finished. And I'm so, you know, proud of him. Uh, what a great example of, of, of a guy coming back and finishing. And now he wants to be a coach. Now he can get jobs at a lot of places, you know, with his degree. So, um, you know, we preach it and and I believe in it. 
Um, and again, I want my guys, sometimes they're in a hurry to go where to like, what are you in a hurry to go? You, you, you know, and you, you know, stay in college as long as, as you, as you can. And when you're ready for that next jump, that may be one year, that may be two years, that may be three years, but then come back and finish that degree. Cause that's the ultimate thing that you could do for yourself and, and for your family. You know, in addition to the academics, just on the, the culture that you've built off the court, you've had players use their voices and be involved in social change issues. They have their own community efforts. You run your own basketball camps where some of the players are. Can you talk about developing men who happen to play good basketball, too, and the culture that you've tried to build there? You know, I'm real proud of them. They've taken on every issue and they've gotten very involved in, with the community and um, you know, Paul Mulcahy started his own foundation as a freshman, you know, um, which, you know, he's done an unbelievable job with the Grateful Four Foundation. Um, but, you know, I encourage it. I, I think, too, it's their family and their upbringing. So I can't take any credit for it. They're great people. They're trying to make the world a better place. Um, and I think that's why, you know, Jersey Mike's is packed and, you know, we have lines for tickets and, you know, waiting list and all those kind of things uh, because the type of people they are. And, you know, 11 of my guys on my roster, current roster, are Dean's List students, too. And it's a great university. I mean, Rutgers has been a great university for a long time. We're now in, I think, is the best academic and athletic league in the country. You know, you got your Northwesterns and Michigans. These are elite academic institutions with the great athletics, too, that all of them have. Um you know, so I think I think there's just so many great things going on here and our players jump right in and they get involved in all these different worthwhile causes. How how important and how much does it help to be in the Big Ten for Rutgers? I mean, it's always the company you keep. And, I, you know, when recruits come in here, I say, you know, like if you want to produce number one right now in the country and it's one of the great engineering schools. I mean, I, my daughter went to Northwestern. It's one of the great academic institutions. And, um, you know, the Indiana's the world won five national championships and the Michigan's and the Ohio State's and the Michigan State's. It's always the company you keep. And we're in some elite company. It says a lot about Rutgers University and and our university is still growing right now. I mean, it's really um, the facility itself has changed all over in my six years. Um, it's harder and harder every year to get into. Um, this was the most, you know, competitive admissions class in the history of Rutgers University. We've been around for a long time, you know, and I think that's part of the league that we're in now. I think that certainly says a lot about us, but also the great things that are happening here at both academically, research-wise and, and athletically. You know, I wanted to talk about on the court, your your team's identity, the, the aggressive identity that you have defensively, the toughness, the pressure with good size. Yes, you have some exciting offensive weapons, but you guys are holding teams to season lows when they play you. Can you talk about that mentality that you try and instill on the court with those players? Um, you know, I, just since day one, we tried to, you know, instill a mentality that we got to outwork and we got to defend and rebound at an elite level. Um, and we're lucky, you know, Caleb McConnell's the defensive player of the year in the big 10. And I think he could be the defensive player of the year nationally in the country. And Cliff is a shot blocker and Paul can play defense too. And these guys are tough. And uh, Mawat Mag, you know, who we recruited from California, prolific prep, but he's Australian uh, played behind Ron Harper for two years and battled him every day. And, and, and people wonder how, why is he such a good defender? Well, when you have to guard Ron every single day, 
you know, you get pretty good. And now he's playing a lot and doing a great job. But, um, you know, I wanted to have an identity. I didn't think our basketball program had one. Um, and they've really embraced that identity. And now we got a lot of guys that, you know, are defensive player of the year caliber guys. And and I think they've seen what happens when you, you defend. And, and it also travels with you too. defense. You know, sometimes your jump shot just won't go in, but defense travels and um, we've had success with it and I hope we continue that. You know, coach, we, we do a lot with uh, some of the coaches in the Philly area with coaches versus cancer. And one of the things that we've noticed is, is the fraternity of coaches. And you talked about how coach Calhoun still cheers you on and calls you all the time. What is it like to be part of that fraternity of coaches and the fraternity of coaches in the big 10? I mean, I, you know, I will tell you, I mean, you got some of the great coaches down, uh, Fran Dumpy down there at LaSalle. And I mean, Jay Wright and how he did it at Villanova. I mean, I learned so much from him and just watching him and did it the right way with class and, you know, just, you know, one of the great coaches and boy, my time down there, I was at George Washington university when Phil Martelli was, you know, number one ranked, you know, at St. Joe's and uh, you know, you just have, you know, terrific people, um, and I was blessed when I first came into the Big Ten. I mean, John Beeline was in the league. And Thad Mata was in the league. And Tom Crane, who's an awesome guy. And, you know, like I've learned from all of those guys sitting in the room. But they're really good people. They, they really are. And, and that's what I've learned. You know, Fran McCaffrey, one of the great coaches, but one of the great people that, that I've come across. And what a job he's doing at Iowa. And he did at Siena. I mean, he was unbelievable there. Um, you know, but just a great fraternity, you know, of, of, of really good people. And they're doing a lot of great things for their communities too, whether it be coaches versus cancer or some of the other, you know, uh, things that they're involved with. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a community that's very tight. We're all a phone call away and there's a lot of good people in it. Coach, we could keep talking to you all day, but we'll let you get back to prepping for the next game. Hope you enjoy this time of year. Can't wait to follow you through March Madness and hope we get to talk to you again sometime. Guys, appreciate it, too. And, and come up to Jersey Mike's. We'll take good care of you. We would we love will. to. We definitely will. You have a great one, Coach. Thank you. Appreciate you. So Coach Beichel has now made me a Rutgers fan. There we go. A Rutgers fan for every game except for when they play Michigan, obviously. So in a couple of weeks, I'll go back to rooting for my guys. But you know what? This is your week. You, you got the Rutgers basketball head coach and the Eagles won. That's right. But what I did, But what I did do is I made sure that we had enough guests that we only got to talk Eagles. You did You did pack the show, so I don't get to talk very much about what that's, happened that's during right. the game. So, so was that like a, well, an intentional thing that you did? I thought you were just getting us good guests. This was really a theory so that I couldn't like talk about what's going on. It's part of my evil master plan. So here's your chance. Talk Eagles but you only have about a minute and a half. Now, look, they, they looked great last week. I mean, it's it's amazing how much one game changes people's perception. Though I, I will tell you, the gamblers still don't believe. I mean, it's two and a half, one and a half to two and a half points is the spread for the Eagles. It's normally a three-point home advantage. So we'll see. I mean, Brock Purdy's never played in this type of situation, even though he has played extremely well since he You can say that every week he goes out there. You can say he's never played in this situation. On the road, in this type of atmosphere, he, did, he hasn't played many road games in general. 
That's but, true, but but Brock Purdy's now played two playoff games and look good. He's, he he's had close to sixty passes attempted, and he hasn't thrown and he hasn't made a mistake. No, and look, he's going to have to keep doing that. And frankly, I think they're going to need to run the ball. And uh, McCaffrey and Elijah Mitchell have both been on the injury report this week, so we'll see what their health is. McCaffrey, it's a calf. I'm not sure what Mitchell's injury is. See what happens where, but look, I mean, I'm excited for the game. Of course, I'm nervous because I'm an Eagles fan and that's what I do. But I definitely feel like they have a good chance that we could come back next week and be talking about something exciting. So I'm looking forward to watching the game with my kids, frankly. Are you going to watch? I'll watch. You'll watch. Of course I'll watch. Yeah. You'll watch. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jeff, let's leave it there. Uh, I know you, you booked it so well. Uh, we're going to do a lot of Pedro Gomez talk when we come back from the break. We'll leave everything else there. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work investigative reporter, senior writer for ESPN, and adjunct professor of journalism at Columbia University, TJ Quinn, joins the show. TJ, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Former adjunct. Former. I still I still wear the t-shirts. So, so um, you still go and advertise it? But Yeah, totally. Um, but I just, hey, they probably listen. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I do have a quick question for you about that, though. As somebody yeah. who is, has now taught journalism, uh, what what has been the reaction in the reporting world to social media and how much harder has it made your job that that athletes can now put out their own stories and do, and don't need to put things out through journalists oh my god it's it's like a, a reacting to the invention of electricity you know or the discovery of it um it, it's I mean, it changed everything. When I, when I was a baseball beat writer, you know, my first year, about 27 years ago, um, the, the social media, the internet really had nothing to do with anything. I got a son now who's a 24 year old reporter and, and, and look at, you know, he's never known anything different. Um, the, there's, there's an immediacy, first of all, in the reaction to everything that you do back in the old days when I got into this and you wrote something and somebody didn't like it, you had to, maybe they would call and leave a voicemail, but you'd wait for that letter to show up in, in three days with a really hard block writing. Uh, so you knew they meant it when they wrote it. And, um, now it's instant feedback from everybody, including the people that you cover. Um, there's, I think a lot of self editing because people anticipate what the reaction is going to be. Um, the fact that players were able to tell their stories in their own ways has changed the nature of, of journalism. I think it's something we were slow to recognize in our business that um, we were able to tell those stories and we were the gatekeeper because we controlled the gate. Um, you know, you, you forget if you're keeping the gate, it's because there's a gate and now there everyone's got a gate. Everybody's a publisher. Um, so it's forced, I, I think our business, the, the, the instant gratification is for the hot takes. And, you know, if you want to get attention and build a huge following, you say outrageous things to get response. But if you want to be a solid, classically journalistic source that people can turn to and trust, it's a lot harder. 
Um, people aren't swayed by facts. Uh, they're, they're swayed by what confirms their biases and their opinions. And so it's a much tougher environment. You have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. We'll move back to that and some of your other stories in a minute, but I wanted to get to why we had John today. Uh, somebody who befriended our show, who we were lucky enough to have on a bunch of times and see in person, uh, Pedro Gomez, who uh, left us too soon. You are working with the Pedro Gomez Foundation to raise awareness. Before we talk the foundation, can you talk to our listeners about Pedro Gomez, the person? Oh, my God. Pedro was uh, you just I don't know that I've ever had a friend like him. Um, we first met uh, my first year covering baseball in 1996. And he was, uh, man, I, I, it's I, that's where I get, that's where I lose my words is trying to talk about what he meant. I mean, he was one of my closest friends. He was, he cared deeply about his job and what he did. And he cared about baseball and he cared about athletes. Um, he cared about doing things the right way. He was passionate about his job, but also supporting athletes who he felt deserved it. Um, you know, he go, he had some famous battles with, with Kurt Schilling, uh, who, uh, a couple of your listeners might remember. And he didn't do it because he was doing it for the attention or just to pick a fight. It's because he hated the way Schilling conducted himself in the clubhouse and wouldn't take accountability. And, and he was going to do that. And the, and the players in the clubhouse who, who did do things the right way saw how Pedro did his job and they supported him and, uh, you know, and, and, and thanked him for the way he did his job. But as a friend, he was, Oh my God. Like, you know, his son Rio, you know, is a, is a pitcher in the Red Sox system. He's in double a. And, you know, when, when he first broke into professional ball in, uh, as a, in, in rookie league baseball, they were playing in Brooklyn and I, you know, I live in Jersey and, and Pedro flew out. I picked him up. We come to the house. First thing he does is he grabs my youngest son. who's a ball player. Let's go right in the backyard. Let's see the swing, you know, let's grab the tee. Um, when we went to the game that night, you know, everybody in the ballpark knows who he is. They're all ball fans and every single one of them. It's like some friend he just met. And when we went to see Rio after the game, he wanted to make sure that my son, Mikey, you know, got to meet him first. And that the two ball players would talk to each other like ball players. And every time my son pitched, he, if I didn't give Pedro updates quickly enough, he was harassing me. What's going on? What happened with that batter? It was three Oh, when you, when you texted me, um, all three of my kids were, you know, devastated when he died, but he was, um, I, I, I could go on forever, man, but he had just, uh, you don't meet somebody with the kind of heart, honesty, integrity, passion that he's got, um, that he had. Um, I mean, somebody said it right after he died. It wasn't just, you know, Pedro wasn't just one person's best friend. He was everybody's best friend. He was the best friend that she could have had. You know, that was the, the from the first time that we met him, which was at a double A all-star game uh, in Trenton. Pedro was was somebody that you could tell first talking about Rio, he would beam. And we're going to have Rio on the show this week and, and they're really looking forward to it. But it, it was more that he wasn't just a journalist and he did his job so well. It's that he had a passion for baseball that just came oh, yeah. through. And, and And how often do you see somebody... You know, we we all have jobs, but Pedro seemed to have a, a passion for his job that I hadn't seen in many people. 
No, it's so easy to get cynical. And, and I think I've been guilty over the, over the years. And when I switched from covering baseball to doing investigative stuff and, and, you know, both of us are writing about doping and, you know, I was, when I started this business, I was in Chicago and, you know, he was in the Bay area and then I was in New York and he was in Arizona, but we still talk probably every day. Um, but, and, and we'd, you know, we'd argue over things. We, we were together through the, the, the Barry Bonds stuff and Pedro, my God, the amount of abuse that he took from people in San Francisco, you know, because he was reporting, you know, critically, not unfairly about Bonds and what was going on with him. And he would stand in there and take it because he knew that his job was right. And I, I, I wrote a column some years ago saying, um, you know, I, I, I gave up my Hall of Fame vote and talked about why. And one of the things I mentioned is that Bonds and Clemens should probably be in the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure I want to put them in. Pedro was passionate that they not be. He was always like, I will never vote for a guy who cheated because he really had that passion for the game itself and for the guys who did it the right way. And, you know, he would, he would scream at me. How can you, how can you feel that way? Um, but yeah, it was, you know, he never wrote a word. He never wrote a cynical word. He never wrote anything to get attention. It's because it came straight from his heart. So now the Pedro Gomez Foundation was created to honor his legacy. It offers lots of different initiatives. You have a summer internship now at the Arizona Republic. You have fundraisers with Pedro Palooza. Tell us about the foundation and how people can support some of these initiatives. The foundation is great. It's I uh, was yeah I'm, I'm uh, unbelievably honored to be a board member. Um, Pedro's wife Sandy is the president of the board, and she asked me to do that. Um, and it's really something because the people who are part of it have the same passion for Pedro that he had for everything that he did. We've got scholarship at Arizona State um, with the the Cronkite School of Communications and Journalism. We've got. Uh, a, uh, a scholarship that we do with the University of Arizona, which is where Rio pitched um, to uh, uh, for ball players, because there's I mean, there's not a lot of scholarship money for for even top D1 baseball schools. Um, and we've got this internship that we're incredibly proud of. Um, it's a 10 week paid internship with the Arizona Republic. Um, we want to expand it if we can. Um, Pedro Palooza is the is the private event fundraiser gala that we're doing, but we also have got an auction that the public can participate in. That's got some amazing items. Um, Rio, uh, as he took over our social media, he just today assigned, uh, Aaron judge ball. He had an Albert Pujols bat yesterday. Um, tons of memorabilia, Yankees, Red Sox, Arizona state university of Arizona Royal. I mean, I'm, stuff from George Brett on there. There are packaged things at Fenway and Yankee stadium with the Miami heat. Um, I mean, it's pretty good. I'm going to slip into huckster mode here. I mean, tons of gift ideas for people. Um, but the money's all, I mean, we got almost no overhead in the foundation. Um, the money's going right into these projects. Um, yeah, you can check out the Pedro Gomez foundation website and also on Twitter, um, we converted or Pedro's family converted his personal Twitter page to the foundation. So look for Pedro Gomez Foundation. Um, I, the auction's running through Saturday, I think uh, 11 p.m. Eastern time. Um, yeah, really, really cool items on there. Yeah, and we're we're really looking forward to talking to Rio. We've heard 
so much about him directly from Pedro when he would talk about him and his own journey through through baseball. Um, one of the other things we wanted to talk to you about was you've been uh, involved in a lot of uh, big stories lately. One of the biggest is Brittany Griner. What was it like for you to to cover that story? And, and how hard is it when you have a story that is that emotional not to get involved in it yourself? That's a, it's a really good question. I mean, it's super emotional and, and not just because of what's at stake. Um, you know, there was, we, we treat in the sports world and I've been as guilty of this as anybody, little things like trades and injuries as matters of national security and like their life and death. Well, this is a story where it was literally an issue of national security with somebody's life potentially at risk. And it changed the way you covered it from the beginning because you recognized that um, she was, we didn't know this at the beginning, but that she was potentially part of an international hostage standoff. You know, was she being treated as uh, someone who violated a crime who's being given due process or is she simply a hostage chit for the Russian government? It became quick came obvious pretty quickly that it was the latter, that they were looking to use her as for leverage for a deal. And we usually as a reporter, you want as much information as you can to get it out there. But you had to recognize that sometimes what you were hearing from Russia was propaganda. And you couldn't independently confirm a lot of what was going on because I couldn't just pick up and go to Russia. There was discussion for about two hours of whether that would be possible. And the State Department advised that was, I believe the words were a spectacularly bad idea. <laughs> um, so, you know, we had to be really, really cautious with our coverage. Um, and then when you would, anytime I tweeted anything on that story, look, I've done stuff involving college sports, which is the same thing as writing about religion. And, you know, you get some incredible reactions. But with this, it's part of the Russian social media bot machine where all of a sudden it would be 6 a.m. in Moscow and all these accounts that have been created within the last month that have, you know, no photo and they have no followers and they're all repeating the exact same talking points. And their point is to just stir up things in U.S. domestic politics. And so you had to be aware all the time that you know, this larger game that was going on between these governments. And what I, you know, big lesson for me throughout was reminding myself, I don't know what I don't know. I heard tons of speculation about this throughout from people who there's no way they knew what was going on in these negotiations. They, you know, we know at the end of the day, she was traded for Victor Boot, this man who was doing a 25 year sentence for supporting terrorism. He was an arms trafficker. But we don't know what else was part of that deal. That's what happens in hostage, you know, trades like that. Um, so there was kind of a humility to it as well. That as much as you tried to report, you never knew how much of the of the picture you were missing. You know, you talk about serious stories. Another one that you had, uh, you covered the Tyler Skaggs tragedy. Uh, this week, we saw Artie Moreno decide that he's not going to sell the team. Can you talk about how Moreno, the organization, and, and baseball itself was shaped by what happened with Tyler Skaggs? Well, there became a, a really quick, uh, really early on, an, an, an issue of, of liability. There was the tragedy of the death, and you saw how that affected people immediately. I mean, his, his teammates, the people around him, fans were devastated. This was a young man in his prime coming back from injuries. 
um, very popular with his teammates, you know, in a drug related death. And it was, you know, it was a devastating story. But then there were questions of, well, who knew what? You had a team employee who was involved, Eric Kay, who, you know, many of us in the business have known for years, just, you know, super nice guy. Turned out Eric had a long term opioid addiction and that he had potentially given Skaggs the drugs that he took the night he died. Um, so you have the question of, is there going to be a criminal trial? Does he have some criminal liability, but also civil li liability? And I spoke not long after, uh, I, you know, early on, I, I, I found out that Eric Kay was involved and was the target of a federal, of, of a DEA investigation. And I spoke to his mother at great length, who, you know, I was really cautious. This is not a person used to dealing with the media. She's a private citizen. And, and I made sure she clearly understood she was speaking on the record, but she said, no, I want people to know about what his addiction has done to our family. And she spoke openly, uh, saying that Eric's boss at the time, Tim Mead, knew about this addiction, knew about the relationship that Eric Kay and Tyler Skaggs had done drugs together. Um, and that suddenly put a target on the team. Now Major League Baseball was interested in, wait a second, does the, the organization have some liability? and some culpability and Tyler Skaggs family ended up, you know, there's still a lawsuit um, with the angels. And so Artie Moreno, if, if, if the civil legislation, excuse me, civil litigation plays out and anybody determines that there is uh, the team had some culpability in Tyler Skaggs death, then Artie Moreno's on the hook as the owner. And he's also still faces potential punishment from the angels. Um, but it also showed, you know, you had, player after player coming into that trial in Fort Worth back in February, um, talking about their own use and how much of it there was. And Major League Baseball realized we have got a real issue with opioids. And with some of these guys, it was recreational. They were crushing it and snorting it and partying. Um, but a lot of them, as Tyler Skaggs' family said, it came from injuries uh, and trying to deal with the pain, like way too many Americans. Um, so it's it's something that tied the you know the organization you know had one to grieve the loss of this player but also recognize you know some of this may be coming back on us so i i, I haven't looked at where the lawsuit stands recently eric k you know for those who don't remember it was tried with causing you know charged in federal court with causing tyler skagg's death he was found guilty in february which surprised a lot of people and he is doing a minimum 22-year sentence for it. Um, it's the, the repercussions of this are going to last a very long time. Yeah. The one thing that when I read some of your stories, I, I, te I tend to ask myself a question that I don't think a lot of people think about, which is, what, when do you side, decide what to report and what not to? So in, in the Skag story, you went to the, to the mom and asked her about certain things that were sensitive. With regard to Brittany Griner, it's even it's even more higher stakes for you because you have to decide what you're going to report and how that's going to literally affect whether she's released or not released. Yeah, I mean, it was you. Hopefully, in this business, you're 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 always thinking of not just about what's the story, what's the reaction going to be, but what are the consequences of it? Because um, these are people's lives, and even if I'm writing about you know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and their drug trials. 
I still always at the end of the day would remind myself, these are human beings. And even if they did what they were accused of, whether it's right or wrong, however you feel, they're still people. They still have families. Just bear that in mind. And in this case, same thing. You have the Skaggs family, which was devastated. You have the Kay family that was devastated. You, um, with his mom, you know, I wanted to know more about him. I also spoke to his, his now ex-wife, um, Cammie, and, 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 and asked her about what they had been through. Because it wasn't just a story about a PR guy for a team and a ball player who were using drugs. It's about what the addiction did to their families. And so I reached out. I was really low-key about it. Um, I said, if you're interested in speaking, I would love to hear what you have to say. I'd love to know, you know, what this has meant to your family. And you're asking somebody to trust you. Um, they, they have no control over what I write. They have no control over what the reaction is. And so when I'm dealing with, with Eric Kay's mother, who, I mean, again, she, it's not like a ball player or, or a team executive where they live in the media and they know the game and they know, you know, they, they've got a level of sophistication. This is somebody who did not. And so that's why I over and over made sure she understood what she was saying had she thought about the consequences and after the story ran and it got obviously a, you know, a ton of, of attention and I reached out to her and said, I just want to see how you are. And if you have anything to say, whether, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, if you want to scream at me, whatever, please say whatever you have to. And she wrote back, I can't bring myself to read it, but I'm hearing from a lot of friends and family and they all say it's fair. And that's all I could ask. And that was, that was a big, big deal to me. Um, with Brittany Griner, you had to, there were things that I had heard that were great news stories, but you had to recognize that it's in Russia's interest to generate a ton of attention in this country. Every time there was a protest, every time somebody got mad at the White House or the State Department, it was good for Russia. And I can't make a decision based on, you know, the interests of the Biden White House or the United States, uh, you know, as an as an entity. It's what serves the reader. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that this could jeopardize her is, you know, it could mean she's in prison there longer. And if that's the case, is it worth writing this? And and you didn't do it because, you know. It wasn't a patriotic thing. Um, you know, it's it's because there's a social consequence to what you're doing. It affects people's lives. Um, our job's not to carry water for the United States government. It's it's you know, you can look objectively at what Russia's done and 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 Ukraine have some pretty strong feelings about it. But I also knew objectively from having covered that country, having been there five years ago and reported from there. Um, that their justice system is transactional. It is not justice, that it is used uh, for political purposes um, and for geopolitical purposes. And so if I erred on any side, it was a side on uh, not feeding into the fire that could, you know, like I would remind people, I was, I was doing you know shows on ESPN all day long. And, you know, I, I, people would talk about, you know, free Britney, you know, let's get her home. Like, okay, you can make that point. That's not my job. My job 
is not to advocate. My job is to report so people can make their own set of decisions. And you just had to remind yourself all the time of what that larger mission was. TJ Quinn, we could talk to you all day. Uh, this was fascinating. Uh, we're going to have to run for now. hope we get to talk to you again. First, thank you so much for what you're doing with the Pedro Gomez Foundation. People can get more information at pedrogomezfoundation.org. Uh, thank you for keeping his legacy alive and for joining us to talk about this and much more. No, thanks for letting me. I mean, it's, 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 there's no hokum in this. It is an unbelievable honor to be able to keep doing this in his name. I miss my friend so much. Every time the Godfather is on, every time somebody in baseball does something, every time, you know, the Sopranos is on a rerun, every time my kids do something, I want to pick up the phone. Um, and this is a way to, to kind of keep them alive. So thank you guys for letting me. We'll make sure to put it out on our social accounts too. Thank you. All right, Jeff, let's keep the talk of Pedro Gomez going. We just had some fun with TJ Quinn. Uh, Let's bring on Red Sox pitching prospect and son of Pedro Gomez, Rio Gomez. Rio, great to get a few minutes with you. Great to be on with you guys. Uh, we just had some fun with TJ uh, telling stories about your dad. Uh, he did tell us that that you have actually taken over the Pedro Gomez Foundation Twitter account uh, with auction opportunities for people. So we wanted to start there. Tell us a little bit about the foundation and, and what you're doing there with the auction. I have. So, yes, you are correct. I've taken over the Twitter. Uh, my brother was uh, relieved of his duties from uh, the Twitter after uh, not being the best at it. So I was uh, next up in line. Um, so after my dad's passing, we uh, we had this idea to create this foundation um, just to be able to, you know, pass on his legacy, his name and, you know, what he stood for and, you know, all these these aspects of his life that he loved so much uh, and just how could we give back and just continue to, to, to bring that to these, you know, these communities in these areas. And so we created the Pedro Gomez foundation. And with that, um, it's been about a year and a half now that we've been running it and we've been, um, raising money. And so for what we've been able to support with that is, um, uh, it all started with uh, the ASU Walter Cronkite, uh, school of journalism. He was very passionate about that. He loved going in to be able to talk and speak, um, speak to a class at least twice a year, three times a year. I remember he'd always text me, you know, leading up to it, like, oh, the day's coming, today's the day. And I think he was more excited about that than actual work than the actual playoffs. And I know that uh, he had, you know, he had talked with the, the, the other professors at the, uh, at the college and um, he was going to eventually teach a class there uh, when he was done with his days at ESPN. And uh, that, that was one of his favorite things was just passing it on to the next, uh, the next generation of journalists. Um, and so that's one one corner that we've been able to uh, we've been able to start a scholarship for for a journalist student, and we're going to continue to raise money for that. And continue to push that one. Another one that we've uh, done is a uh, my alma mater, U of A, University of Arizona baseball program. Um, I was a walk on at U of A, and I never received any scholarship money. And so we thought it'd be great if we could uh, help create scholarship money for other walk ons at the program. Um, just our way of it being able to give back and help that program and what it's been able to provide for me and my family and my dad and just so much more. So this is our way of giving back to them. Um, one of my dad's favorite charities was Ump's Care, and that was uh, these MLB umpires and other umpires, I guess, all around the country, and this is their charity. And he loved uh, being a part of their golf tournament, and um, they did a bartender night out here, and so we've been able to help fund money, and now they're um, teaching um, – 
umpiring schools to uh, high school kids and youths and teens uh, all around the like in other you know undeserving cities, underserving cities. Um, and so they've been able to bring one out here to Phoenix, which has been great. And actually, tonight is the last night of it. So I'm heading over there in a little bit to go uh, to go see how that goes. And then uh, the last one that we've been uh, able to be a part of is uh, NAHJ, which is the uh, Hispanic Journalists uh, Association. And um, we've created an internship for the Arizona Republic for this summer, a paid internship through that. And so it's been great. It's been a great, awesome year and a half. And, you know, uh, so this week we have this auction rolling and we are, um, again, just trying to generate some more money and, uh, you know, it's all going to great cause. And thankfully we have a fantastic connections all around the sporting world that we've been very generous and lucky that to receive all these fantastic items that are on the, on the auction list. So Rio, we've had the chance to luckily to talk to your dad over the years. And, and there was never a conversation that didn't include talking about you and your brother talking about your baseball journey, talking about your statistics, um, and just him beaming uh, at, at what you were doing. Uh, what, what, it, what was it like growing up having a father that was so passionate about baseball, and, and how did it impact what you were doing today? I mean, it, it was a blessing to be able to have that as a kid. Obviously, baseball became the path. Uh, you know, it was... was soccer and football and basketball were encouraged but never to the uh never to the degree that baseball was and uh it was just easy for me and my brother to fall in love with the sport of baseball um and just having him have this ability to give us to be able to talk to you know big leaguers former big leaguers coaches just you know whatever it is maybe you're struggling with at the moment you know you're 12 you're 14 and I mean, even when you're 12 and 14 and now you're 28, a lot of the times uh, the same mental issues don't really go away. They kind of uh, remain constant. And so, you know, just dealing with that pressure or, you know, when you get nervous on the mound or if you start, you know, just feeling all this negativity and you fall down the spiral. And it was just always great that, you know, you get to hear from a Nomar Garcia Parra or, you know, a Matt Cain or a Barry Zito. And they, they let to tell you that, you know, it's, they go through the same thoughts and it just helps you realize that, you know, you're not the only one and just be, and you know, these big leaguers, these guys are at the top of their game also feel the exact same thing. And it helps, you know, just that reassurance and that confidence build and just allows you, you know, as you climb through the ranks to know that everyone, everyone feels the same way. I saw one time your dad went to Greg Maddox too, for, for questions that you had talk to us what it's like to, to now carry that forward with your own baseball career. Uh, you've talked about finding your own confidence since his passing. Um, talk about your own journey now, which started as a high schooler being cut in your senior year and now has led to the career you have. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, my senior year, I got cut from the high school team. My junior year, I was on the JV team. So I never really got that varsity experience. And um, I walked on at the junior college, and then I ended up walking on at U of A. And you see all these other kids that you're playing with at, you know, at the U of A or when you get drafted, and they're all state this, all conference this, all, you know, they have these accolades that, that they bring with them. And, you know, they're the best players at their school, the best players in their area. And there's me who didn't have any of that. And for a while, I did struggle to feel like if I fit in or if I was a part of this and it really wasn't until after his passing that this, this, my own self-confidence really started to grow and beam through that where I realized, you know, I, I am supposed to be here. And that like, even though I didn't have that high school experience or like, you know, maybe even the college experience that a lot of these other kids had, 
I'm here for a reason. And I know that I'm just as good, if not better than most of these guys. And I can compete and hold my own at these levels. So, so one of the things that is coming up in this upcoming season, I think is something that you probably experienced and probably could give us some insight in. You know that there's some rules changes coming to the MLB this year. Mm-hmm. What, what is it like? So the pitch clock is, is something that we've heard ma- senior major league pitchers complain about the pitch clock. What has it been like to, to deal with the pitch clock in the minors and how does it give an advantage to the pitchers that are coming up through the system now? Yeah, I think I, I'm not sure if there's much of an advantage quite yet, but those first few weeks uh, this past season, it was really eye-opening because there was nothing to to practice or to to lead you into that. And then all of a sudden, you see these 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 game clocks that are on on the sides of the field that look like you know as if like you're in an NFL stadium or an NBA stadium, looking at a shot clock or a play clock rundown and those first few weeks, it really speeds up and you really feel rushed and how quick you're going. And then after that, you get adjusted and you realize, okay, the clock's not that bad and you can work with it. You can play with it. And I suppose if there's any advantage now is that, you know, you get a little bit adjusted to being quicker in between pitches, to being able to reset, learning how to reset with that specific time. You know, things go bad. You go fall down 2-0, 3-0 in a batter. You can't go take 30 seconds, 40 seconds to take that deep breath to reset. And so now you have to learn how to do that within that 18, 19 seconds that they give you. Jeff and I are sitting here counting down till pitchers and catchers report. What, what do you do these days? How excited are you? Are you enjoying the rest, getting ready? What, what, are, you, what are you doing now? Uh, I am extremely excited for the season to come around. It's only a few weeks away before I report to spring training. And tomorrow is actually the first day that I'll be throwing live ABs out here in Phoenix. And that's always a awesome day i mean you get to you know put the cleats on feel the clay you have a batter step in the box and it just gives you that little bit more edge that little more and more adrenaline rush than as opposed to throwing bullpens and so this entire off season i've been working out at this facility um there's about 15 20 of us pro guys major league minor league guys and it's been great environment great setting we come about five days a week we work out we throw um, arm care it's a one-stop shop we've got it's like a five pack of indoor uh, bullpens mounds and um, just doing everything that I can to, to be able to make that splash when I show up to spring training this year. What What has the experience been like going through the minor league system of the Red Sox? It's been a dream that I never thought would ever take place. Uh, even when I'd gotten drafted, I was a 36 rounder and in my brain, realistically, I thought, all right, maybe I have a year, maybe two years. So let's enjoy this ride as long as it, it goes. Cause two years might come up, come and go quicker than I realized. And, now we're working on year seven and just been grinding away and you know it absolutely is a grind and i know it's very cliche and you hear that all the time but that's probably the best way to describe it because you see these guys you play with these guys and it's you know the same groups of guys and you watch you know the draft class ahead of you the draft class below you and you you know you all become teammates at one point or another and you know you're you're everyone there is is hoping for the same dream. And the best way to go about that, I think, is that, you know, you don't have any ill will against anyone else. You don't hope anyone does worse or does bad or has bad outings. I think, you know, you just, it's almost like, why can't we all make it to the major leagues together? Why can't we all be great? Why can't we all be be just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I do my job, but I want you to do your job too. So that way we can keep climbing together and achieve this dream. So every time we have a, a baseball player on, we ask a question about their minor league time. They always have a story about some long bus ride and what they were doing. Or What's your craziest minor league story? Oh, man. You know, I'll tell you what. The last few years, the minor leagues have gotten a little easier. Um, 
these newer guys have it a lot easier. They don't remember what it was like pre-COVID where there's one bus and it might be a 15-hour ride and you don't even have your own road to yourself. You're sitting with someone else and guys are sleeping on the ground. And, um, you know, I don't know if there's maybe one story specific, but I just remember the first time we had a very long bus ride and I was in the New York Penn League and we were coming back from Batavia, New York back to Lowell, Massachusetts, and it ended up being a 12-hour bus ride, and we were playing that very next day, so there was no off day in between, but you hadn't, I hadn't fallen asleep yet, and I'm watching the sun rise. <laughs> and that was just an eye-opening experience where there haven't been too many sunrises caught in my life, but to have one while I hadn't fallen asleep yet and I'm still on a bus to watch the sunrise and to know we still had a few hours to go before we got back to Lowell. And then we were all going to sleep for a little bit and then we we're going to play a game that night. And I think that was that, that eye-opening experience. I was like, this is professional baseball. This is that, <laughs> that bull Durham experience that I had. like, this was the first one where I was like, now I'm here. Well, look, we can't wait to continue following your journey. We wish you the best of luck in your own career. Uh, obviously, we can't wait to keep uh, promoting Pedro Palooza. We'll share your auction items. People can go to pedrogomezfoundation.org for more information. Rio, thanks so much for your time and everything you're doing, man. Best of luck. Guys, thank you so much. Jeff, any final thoughts talking to Rio and TJ? It was pretty special. You know, we've had the chance over the years to get to know Pedro both on the air and off the air. And it, it's so good to hear from close friends like TJ and to hear from his own son, who we've heard him beam about uh, over the years. And, and this is our chance, as we say often, this is our chance to help in giving back and using our platform. And for people that are out there this week, our platform is, is help the Pedro Gomez Foundation go to their website, bid on their auction items, and just... Just, just keep Pedro Gomez's name out there because he was one of the greats in the sport. Good stuff, Jeff. And, and as a man. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.